Brickrew's Feast. This story has everything. It has a king who gets someone else to solve his problems. It has warriors who are determined to have adventures and show off to the max. It has giants, water monsters, fearsome cats from another world cave and more. There is also a very big axe. The story comes from an old text called Fled Brickrun. I haven't told it all here, but I have included all the very best bits. Now I'm going to tell this story from Maeve's point of view. That's Queen Maeve, the Queen of Connacht. I know the accent is wrong, but it'll have to do. Brickcrew's Feast Part 1 A New Feasting Hall Welcome to Crook and I. My name is, of course, Queen Maeve, and I am the Queen of Connacht. Stand before my royal chair so I can see you properly. I should also introduce you to Alil McMoggoch and my daughter, Findavar. You're just in time for the feast. Mm, I can smell that pig roasting on the spit. There have been many famous heroes, kings and warriors who have been guests in this hill of high-roofed palaces and feasting halls. But you are certainly worthy to join us, noble travellers, for this is a royal site and a place of fame and glory. Oh, but they were not all as welcome as you are, my friends. I haven't yet forgotten the unexpected guests that King Concover of Awanmaka sent us. Oh, but that was Brickrew's fault. It is indeed a good story. Well, sit down and make yourselves comfortable upon my new crimson cushions. Warm your feet on the red embers of the fire. There's just enough time until the juices of the roast pig run free and the flesh fork is called to its best use. So let me tell you at least a part of the tale of Brickrew's feast. Brickrew was Concover's Brugu. Oh, what's a Brugu, you ask? Well, a uh, Brugu is a very wealthy farmer. He is so rich that he can count his cows in six hundreds. A Brugu must be rich enough to offer hospitality to any passing traveller, like yourselves. But his most important job is to provide a place where the king or queen may feast with the most important people, warriors and poets, and their noble wives and sons and so on. Besides that, a queen or a king needs a feasting hall to hold pig-roast parties where one warrior is chosen to be the top hero, champion for the coming year. That is most important. No chieftain wants his or her best warriors fighting against each other all the time. Now, as I told you, Brickrew was chief Brugu to Concover, one of the most important kings of Ulster. Concover's status, or so he thought, was so high that he had to have plenty of elite warriors around him, the kind who liked to show off all the time. They would always be at their feats of strength and skill, or away chariot racing and pole vaulting all over the fortress. His top three super warriors were Loigra, who liked to be known as Loigra the Triumphant, and Connell, who expected to be called Connell the Victorious. And then there was Cucullan. He was hardly more than a boy, but he won every contest and competition. He was always to be found somewhere in the province, fighting or, or generally causing trouble. Cucullum was Connell's young nephew, 
and he led his poor uncle such a dance. When it came to the once-a-year special pig roast party to choose the champion, Loigra, Connell and Cucullan each expected to be chosen a champion and get to gobble up all the best bits of roast pig before anyone else got a single bite. You can see why Concova needed such a good brugu. Brickcrew was wealthy, he had to be rich, but he was not helpful. In fact, he was such a troublemaker that he got given the nickname of Poison Tongue. In the end, Concova decided he was better off without his chief brugu and refused point-blank ever to go to any feast arranged by Brickcrew again. This did not prevent Brickcrew from deciding to cause so much trouble that it would last all year and spread all over the country. And this is what he did. He built a feasting hall at Dunrudriga, northeast of Awanmaka. It was a magnificent building. So when Brickrew delivered his invitation, it left Concover with a problem. If he just downright refused to go to the feast, it would make it look as though Brickrew was calling all the shots. Concover would be the one to lose status, and he couldn't have that. Everyone would laugh at him. He had to find a good excuse. I would love to feast in your magnificent new hall, he told Brickrew apologetically. Oh, but I'm afraid you've managed to upset all my important warriors. It would not be right for me to attend the feast without them. I am sorry. Brickrew smiled and pretended to agree, but he knew just what to do. First, he paid a visit to Loigra and his wife. He told Loigra about the feast without the slightest mention of the king's refusal to attend. Oh, without doubt, he added slyly, the king intends to appoint you as his champion and you must be there to receive the top champion's portion. Who else could possibly deserve it better than you? Then while Loigra was dreaming about himself receiving the adoring praise of everyone else, Brickrew carefully listed the prizes and presents, gold bracelets, torques, horses and chariots, cattle and pigs that went along with the winning of the champion's portion. Make sure you wear your very best clothes and bring along at least 50 of your noble women, smiled Brickrew, turning to Lyra's wife. When your husband becomes the most important warrior in the land, you will be the first woman at the feast. And for a moment, Brickrew pretended to look troubled. Oh, but I did hear a rumour that your husband refuses to attend one of my feasts. The woman frowned. Oh, he'll be there, she replied sharply. Brickrew left quickly, trying not to grin. He could hardly stop himself from rubbing his hands together in silent laughter. He had twisted them both round his little finger. Oh, this was going to be easy. One down, two more to go. And the trick worked brilliantly each time. Soon, Connell the Victorious, his wife and 50 of her women, could not wait to come to the feast. Even Cucullum was on board. Not even Ema, his wife, famous for her wits and her clever words, saw through the trick. In no time, Brickrew was back at our mucker with Concover himself. Oh, my king, I'm delighted to tell you that each of your most famous warriors have accepted an invitation to my feast. 
he informed Concava. They and their wives are all delighted to attend. Concava was horrified, but what could he do? There was no way he could go back on his word without losing status. Then he had a thought. There was one last chance for peace. Brickrew, you are a troublemaker, he replied. Oh, yes, I will keep my word. I will attend the feast, but you will not. You yourself must stay out of the feasting hall. Brickrew bowed his agreement, but he was not bothered by the king's decision. Why, he had already instructed his builders to include a high balcony in the thatched roof over the porch of the hall. Oh, he would not be present at the feasting tables, but he would watch all his planned chaos unravel the order of the banquet. He would have a bird's eye view. The day of the feast arrived and everything was ready. Brickrew took his seat in the special balcony. He could not wait to see what happened. Concover took up his place on the dais. He was not feeling so pleased with himself. Liger the Triumphant, Connell the Victorious and the young Cuckullan just swaggered in to stand behind the king's chair. They'd left their weapons outside the hall, as was the usual custom, but they carried their confidence like sharp, bright swords. All three eyed each other aggressively, ready to put up a fight. The rich smell of roast pig was making their mouths water for the prize. They each tried to catch the king's eye, but Concover would not look at any of them. He lifted his hand and a server filled his cup. But the warriors were getting restless. Servers hurried in to fill cups for them, but it did not help. First they began to fidget. Then they began to nudge and shove each other. Cuckullan trod hard on his uncle's foot. Connell's elbow ended up in Loigra's ribs and Loigra's drink ended up soaking Cuckullan's tunic. A battle of fists was about to begin. And then the women arrived. All 153 of them, all at the same time, all trying to get through one door. The three wives had caught sight of each other, just one ridge away from the feasting hall, and none of them had waited to see what might happen. Each group of women just lifted their skirts and ran. And they all reached the door of the hall at once. And that is how 153 women got stuck in the entrance. Arms, legs, elbows and knees were just jammed together. No one could get in and no one could get out. But it didn't stop them yelling, though. It did stop Concover's heroes from arguing. They stared in amazement at the web of wedged women. Well, they didn't dare laugh. No one dared laugh. The women were far too angry with everyone in sight. Only Brickrew was crowing with delight. But the smile was quickly wiped from his face when the young Cucullan just sauntered over to the wattle wall on its firm foundation. He casually stretched his massive muscles, bent down, with no obvious effort, lifted the wall free from its base. Brickrew clutched at the tilting roof, while the women, still tutting and complaining, sorted themselves out and strode into the hall, and with a thump, the wall returned to its original level. But nothing had been settled. It was clear that the king was not yet prepared to choose his champion. 
the rich scent of roasted meat was becoming rank with burnt fat. No one noticed. The battle of words went on and on, and not even Emer's clever eloquence could win over the king to her viewpoint. It rapidly led to the battle of fists, and might have been worse as angry voices called for weapons. And at last, in desperation, Gunkava rose to his feet. His poet struck the staff of the king three times on the wooden dais and called for silence. It was such a surprise that everything stopped. All voices were stilled. All eyes were on Kunkava. Kunkava drew in his breath. His fists were clenched tight. Get out of here! Go! he shouted. His warriors stared open-mouthed. No chief spoke to his greatest champions like that. It was an insult. It would cause these three great fighters to lose status if they could not respond. Concover's fist relaxed as he regained control of himself. Go, he repeated, but this time his voice was more even. Uh, go uh, to Rathcrohan. Get into your chariots and go south to the great palace of Queen Maeve of Connacht. She is, she is wise. King Alil is a fine warrior. Cool your heads on the long road and maybe they will be able to choose between the three of you. For today, I cannot. So the three heroes called for their charioteers. They leapt into their chariots and the race to Connacht began. Concover glanced up into the roof shadows where he knew Brickrew would be merrily skulking in his high gallery. At least it's several days' journey to Crookham, he muttered, mostly to himself. Part 2. The Cats of Crookham And so Kunkova sent his quarrelsome heroes all the way to me, here in Crookham. And no, it wasn't a compliment. He was just passing on a problem too big for him to cope with. Well, three big problems, I suppose. The first thing I heard was the sound of thunder. That's odd, I thought to myself. There were no clouds in the sky just now. The rumbling grew louder. The wood-woven partitions in the hall began to shake and stored weapons fell, clattering to the floor. Then my daughter, Fendivar, came in all out of breath, tumbling into the house. Her eyes were wide with surprise and her hair waved wildly around her head. There are chariots coming down the road, she gasped. We waited for her to catch her breath. It was no good trying to rush Fendivar when she had news to tell. At first, she said, it looked as if a thundercloud was rumbling along the road. Then I saw the chariots, three chariots, and so hard and rapid was the pounding of the horses' feet that the clods of earth, thrown into the air by their galloping, seemed like a, a flock of birds following the hooves. The chariots, I interrupted her sharply. Who is in the chariots? Findevar stared into the distance. Oh, in the first chariot is a fair man, she said. His hair is long and three-coloured. It is brown at the roots, blood-red in the middle and gold at the tips. He wears a crimson tunic with five gold stripes and he's armed with a five-pronged flaming javelin. I shook my head. That 
is the furious red-handed loiger, I told her. And who is with him? Oh, there's a lean man with wavy fair hair, she responded. He, his long cloak is blue and crimson. Oh, but I could see the great bronze shield on his arm and the long flaming spear in his hand. I sighed. That, I fear, is Connell. He arrives like a wolf among cattle. He always does. This is not good. Findvar looked at me directly now, and her eyes were shining. Oh, but you should see the man in the third chariot, mother. He is... he is beautiful. He has a fine crimson tunic open at the neck and fixed with a gold brooch like a leaping salmon. Uh, and he has red-gold hair, all held back by a gold band. His eyes shine like brilliant dragon stones, and his teeth could be taken for a row of pearls so white. Uh, oh, yes, and there's a huge golden sword resting against his side. I coughed. Describe his horses, I interrupted her. Oh, oh, oh yeah, well, there are two. Uh, they are both fiery animals, of course, she replied. No, no, what colour are they? One is a huge shining grey with a great curling mane. The other is a spirited dark grey, almost black, sleek and slender. Oh, you've said enough, I told her grimly. That is the boy warrior, Cucullan himself. Now we're in real trouble. I sent her away to prepare hospitality for our unwelcome guests while I thought about what to do. I could not turn them away. That would mean a loss of status for me. Besides, if I did not receive them and quickly, those three clod-hopping heroes would wreck the place. I had to come up with a plan. From the corner of my eye, I caught Alil, my brave husband, just sidling out of the hall, spear in hand, trying to give the impression that he'd always planned to go hunting this fine day. Oh, no, you don't, I told him sternly. I need you here to greet our guests. We have to find out what it is they're wanting and then come up with a plan to get rid of them safely. We greeted and feasted them, politely, of course. We heard them out and then gave them the guest hall with everything they needed to make themselves comfortable. And once they were settled, we met up with our closest counsellors to decide what could be done. Can't you just choose one of them to be champion, Weedle Dalil? Pick that young madman, Cucullan. He looks the strongest. What, have his wolfish uncle and that quick-tempered loigra set fire to the roof beams? Oh, you must be joking, I snapped back. We have to get all three of them at once. We could leave them to guard the new feasting hall. What, overnight? Yes. I thought about the new feasting hall. It was almost as magnificent as the one Brickrew had built at Dunridriga. Like his hall, ours was splendid and costly, with frontings of bronze embellished with gold. Our hall, too, was equally admired for the carved magnificence of its lintels. Each pillar of our hall had also taken no less than seven men to fix it into place. Anything that could be built in Ulster could easily be matched in Connacht, under my rule. Yet we had built this feasting hall just a little too close to the cave. There is a cave near here. It's called Oenigat. Oh, it's not a big cave. The entrance is quite small, but everyone knows that this cave is an entrance to that other world that lies so close to our own. 
Time flows differently there. When it's winter here, summer still blossoms there. And the creatures of that other world, however familiar, become monstrous and fearsome when they venture into our world. Oh, it was fine until the feasting hall was completed. Then the first night of the first feast, the cats attacked. They were black clots of congealed night, and their eyes glowed like baleful red stars. Yet their claws were sharp and terrible. No warrior could stand against them. Their midnight breath was enough to bring blood-watering fear to the stoutest heart. And even if one hero managed to unfreeze his sword arm, no blade, however bright, could strike them. They would vanish with the dawn light, but morning feasts have little appeal to champions wishing to spend their nights in eating and drinking and sharing old tales round the warmth of a fire. I didn't want to admit it, but Alil's plan was a good one. The overnight guarding of the hall might make a worthy test for the choosing of Concover's champion. We couldn't lose. One, at least of the warriors, might discover a way to rid us of the terrible cats. If not, we might be free of the troublesome warriors. Either way, we wouldn't lose status. So with every possible semblance of courtesy, we sent for all three of Concover's champions and explained the test. Oh, they were so eager to face the challenge that I almost felt sorry for them. But as night fell, we had to lead them to the haunted feasting hall, and there they were left alone. I wondered which of them, if any, would still be alive in the morning. I found it difficult to sleep that night, and was ready with King Alil to make our way to the house even as the sun was rising. They were all still alive, at least. Liger and Connell were clinging to the high roof beams, legs and arms, tightly wrapped around the timbers to stop them dropping to the floor below. They were pale and shaking. They'd let their weapons fall, but they were still alive and mostly unhurt. The boy Cucullum was still standing, his golden sword in his hand. He stood staring ahead of him, striking at nothing as if the vicious cats were still visible. He had fought bravely all night, receiving cuts and dripping scratches, but had done no damage to the other world cats. We brought them back, warmed them at the fire, offering them wine and warm food, and slowly, so slowly, they began to recover and tell tales of their heroic battle with the mysterious and monstrous animals. Yet it was clear that even they, the greatest warriors of Ulster, had not landed a single killing blow. I knew that I must act fast and get them to leave before they forgot their fear and demanded to make a second attempt to defeat these elusive enemies. So I sent for each of them to come to me in the Queen's Hall one at a time. I had the same message for each of them, though they did not know it. You did not destroy a single cat, I said, but nevertheless you fought a good battle. I gave Loigra a bronze cup chased with silver birds. I gave Connell a white gold cup embellished with silver. And lastly, I gave Cucullan a golden cup decorated with dragonstones. Each cup was magnificent in its own way, and the three champions accepted their gift with delight. 
Each one thought that he was the only one who'd been given a winner's cup as a prize, and each one immediately rushed to his chariot and raced away, wanting to be the first to arrive back at Awanmaka and claim the champion's portion. I felt quite sorry for them. They each really thought that they'd won the champion's prize. And why not, I thought, feeling very pleased at the way I'd handled the dangerous situation. It's Concover's problem. Let him sort it out. Part 3. All the way to Kerry. My part in the story is done. But I do know what happened when the three champions arrived back to Concover's Hall at Awanmaka, and I can tell you the rest of the story, if you care to hear it. Shall I go on? Very well. Let us refill your goblets. Help yourself to an apple from the barrel. And if you make yourselves comfortable again, I shall continue the story. The three heroes raced north, stopping for nothing and no one. So fast were their horses that the hooves were a blur as they ran. It was as if a whirlwind troubled the roads. Yet it was Lygra who arrived first, just ahead of the other two, and he swaggered into Concover's presence. My king, he crowed, waving the shining bronze cup above his head. Prepare for me another feast at once. I have returned the victor from Kruokan. This fine cup is my prize. I am your chosen champion. There was a sudden loud guffaw of derision from behind Loigra as Connell strode into the hall, close on his heels. He held up the bright white gold cup, high above his head. Silver's better than bronze, he mocked. Prepare the feast, he grinned at Concover, but prepare it for me. I am your chosen champion. The two men stood glaring angrily at each other. Each still held their prizes in the air. And then, with a shout of triumph, another warrior leapt between the two angry figures. It was Kukulan, and he was holding the great golden cup above his head, both hands holding it high. And gold is best of all, he gloated. Again, I have snatched the champion's portion from under your greedy noses. You two haven't a chance against me. Concover stood up, thinking fast. He had only moments to prevent a fight that might lose him all three of the finest warriors and more besides. Wait, he shouted, lifting his hand for silence. Uh, listen to me. I, I see a great prize in each of your upraised hands. Bronze, silver, gold, all are precious things. Maeve, who is wise, has rightly praised each of you for valour and strength. Each of you is a champion, as she can tell. But we still need to choose a champion of champions. Neither she or I can choose between you. But, he paused for effect. But there is one who can. Everyone stared at the king, waiting for him to speak again. You must go to Kuroi Macdora. You must all travel, all three of you, to his fortress in Kerry. Only he may find a challenge great enough to choose between you. The king sat down. There was silence in the hall. Loigra, Connell 
and Cuckulan just stared at each other. All the way to Kerry? It would be a very long journey. And at Kuroi? No one knew very much about this mysterious hero. Some said he came from distant lands across the sea. Rumour had it that he was a giant. It was whispered that he had knowledge of strange magic. Stories told that his fortress could not be entered unless Kuroi allowed the entrance to be found. It was, it was told, impossible to exit or enter the fort at night at all. It continuously whirled and revolved right through the hours of darkness. Well, as Lygra and Connell and Cuckullan left Arwen Maka together, they might almost have been friends. They laughed and joked together as they mounted their chariots, waving to friends, accepting the admiring smiles of the women of the court. This adventure would become the stuff of stories and praise poems forever. It was a very long and weary journey from Awan Maka right down to that most southern kingdom of Kerry. It would have taken them many days, yet they were so full of tales of their own exploits and prowess. Well... Maybe for them, the, the way would have not seemed so long. But when they finally arrived at the great wooden gates and shouted their famous names aloud, they were in for a shock. Kuroi was away from home. They were greeted and welcomed by his wife, Blonard. Now, this was no unfortunate accident. It was part of Kuroi's plan. He had known that the heroes were on their way and had warned his wife, telling her exactly what to say and what to do. She met them politely, offering the use of baths and beds and providing the best of food and drink. But when it got dark, she returned to them with a special request. I am certain, she told them, that heroes of your prowess and reputation would not refuse to take a turn in guarding the fort while my husband is away and unable to see to the task. One of you must stand outside the palisade each night, she continued, but I must warn you that once the fort is sealed, the magic of Kuroi causes the fort to revolve throughout the night, and once outside, you will not be able to enter again until dawn. But this was a request that no warrior could refuse to accept, the three would-be champions puffed out their chests and accepted the task without hesitation. It was the eldest, Loigra, who took the first night's watch. He had no fears that his courage would be greatly tested, and for the first part of the night he met nothing. Then towards dawn, coming from the direction of the sea, what he saw turned his blood to water. A terrifyingly ugly giant was striding straight towards him. He was so huge that his head seemed to reach the dim clouds way above the rising sun. The spread of his legs was so wide, it seemed that the whole of the shimmering sea lay between his thighs. On his shoulder, as if it had been no more than a sheaf of barley, he carried a bundle of bark-stripped oak trees with axe-sharpened roots. Lygra stared in helpless horror and almost in desperation made a cast at the monstrous figure with his spear. It bounced off the body, falling away uselessly. And then horror 
became terror as the giant spread his arms and reached out for him. Three hill ridges those hideous arms stretched and made a grab for him. And in the giant's hands he seemed no bigger than a baby. Half dead with fear, he was lifted way into the air and flung like a boneless doll over the palisade and back within the walls of the fortress. White and shaking, he was found in the mud by the main gate. Yet he still managed to persuade the warriors who found him that he had used his spear shaft to pull vault back into the fort just to prove it could be done. And the second night, yes, it was Connell's turn, and he fared no better than Lygra. On the third night, it was Cucullan who went out to take up the duty of guarding the fort. And little did he know that the challenge he would face would be far more terrible than that faced by his two companions. For a start, this was the night that several enemies of the fort had gathered together close by. There were the strange grey goblin-like men of Shetland d'Urvoil. There were the three times three sons of Big Fist, as well as the ox feeders of Bregia. Strange and dangerous enemies, every one of them, and they gathered just that night to plunder the fort. When Cucullan left the safety of the fort that night, he was feeling, well, not perhaps nervous. The boy was generally too impulsive to be nervous, but he was definitely experiencing foreboding about the night to come. But because of this, he was ready for anything, and that was just as well. All three groups of nine enemies let out terrifying yells and attacked him all together. But Cucullan was ready. He sprang into the air and fell on them, killing all three nines. He heaped their heads on the seat of watching and went back to his waiting, weary after such a hard fight. It was much later in the night that he was roused by a deep booming sound, like a heavy sea. It was as if all the water of the lot was rising at once. Tired as he was, he could not resist going to see what was making such a din. And there, its long sinuous neck rising to the reach of the fort, was a massive pest, a terrible water monster. When it opened its dripping jaws, it could have swallowed any house or hall within the fort with one swallow and its gullet was dangerously close to the house where his comrades rested. But Cucullan was the master of many a martial feat, and he rapidly recalled one of his favourites, the famous swooping feat. With a cry, he leapt high into the air, landing on the monster's head, clinging desperately to its curving neck. He thrust his arm right down the monster's throat and tore out its heart. The creature fell shuddering back to the land, where Cucullan, despite the hard blow to his shoulder, hacked it to bits with his sword. But the night was not yet over. As Cucullan, cold and deeply weary, watched the first hint of light turning the distant sea to misty silver, he perceived the huge giant striding towards him, just as his companions had seen on their nights of guarding. But Cucullan did not wait for the huge hands to reach out for him. 
He was ready with another of his famous feats. This time he let the salmon leap. With his drawn sword in hand, he landed right on top of the giant's head, twisting and whirling like an angry eagle until the giant became dizzy with the hero's constant circling. Ah, I have bested you, cried out the agile young warrior. Life for life, now you must give me the three wishes of my heart. It is so. I must grant your requests, growled the giant, but only if you can speak them in one breath. Then, yelled the boy, I must have recognition of myself as Ireland's top champion forever, the champion's portion without dispute, and acknowledgement of my wife as the first of the noble women of Ireland. <sighs> he took a very deep breath. It shall be as you wish, grumbled the giant, and just vanished, leaving Cucullan alone on the ground in the early dawn. The young warrior sat there thinking, all he had to do was to get back into the fort before dawn. After all, Liger and Connell had both managed to do it by pole vaulting in using only their spear shafts. They, of course, had failed to mention to him that the giant had done the work and flung them into the fort. Cucullan eyed the distance with some trepidation. It was a massive leap, even for him. Well, if they could do it, so could he. Twice he tried and twice he failed. Well, surely I can't fail to gain the champion's portion just because of one jump, he thought to himself. I have to find a way. And he sat down to think about the problem. And did he give up, I hear you ask? Oh, come on. This is Cucullum we're talking about. No, he wouldn't be beaten by Loigra or by Connell. He worked it out. In the end, he went on springing backwards and forwards until he could rebound off the walls of the fort, giving him the extra height to repel him over the palisade. I will admit that it was a good feat even for him. Well, Blonard hailed Cucullan as a great hero and seemed to know all about the daring and the deeds he had achieved that night. But of course, Loigra and Connell were not about to accept her judgment, or not them. And then Kuroi came home. Strung over his shoulder were the heads of the three nines, the enemies overcome by the young warrior Kukulun in the early hours of darkness. Kuroi praised Kukulun's power and prowess and announced, to the deep irritation of Loiger and Connell, that this, the youngest of the heroes, was worthy of the title, Ireland's chief champion, entitled to the champion's portion, and that Ema, Kukulun's wife, should have precedence over all other women. And that was that. After giving Cucullan a large amount of gold and silver as a prize for his night's work, he packed the three heroes back to Ulster. Oh wait, don't get up. Refill your cups with me. This isn't the end of the story. But Cucullan has won the champion's portion, you say? Oh <laughs> no, it's not that simple. It never is where Concover's heroes are concerned. The best part of the story is still to come. Part 4. The Final Challenge I don't know what Concover thought when his three champions arrived back at Arwen Maka. I never have had any opportunity to ask him, but I can imagine the scene. What with the young Cocullan crowing like a young cockerel and Loigra and Connell sulking like miserable thunderclouds. Concover was in a difficult position. 
what happened next, you ask? Oh, I'm trying to tell you that. Well, Neugert and Collar would not concede that the boy hero had been appointed champion by Kuroi. And eventually, even the people of Arwen agreed that there was not one word from a poet who had recorded and told these deeds of his. There were only the words of Cuchulain himself. Maybe he had just imagined a sea monster, a pest. Maybe he had dreamt about a giant. In the end, even Cuchulain decided that he had just had enough. While he would not admit defeat, he just told everyone that the champion's portion was not worth arguing about anymore. He just said that he did not care. But this would not solve the problem forever. Before long, there would be another gathering with horse racing and chariot driving, feasts and sports. Before long, there would be another feast and the champion's portion would again be offered to the best of the warriors. The argument between the same three heroes would begin all over again. And that is exactly what happened. But then Konkova couldn't stop holding feasts, not forever. He would have lost all his status as king. Oh no, he couldn't do that. So after a day of games... Kunkava, his warriors and nobles, came in from the sporting fields and settled down to a fine feast. Kunkava dared not guess what might happen. He could only hope for the best. They were all seated, cups were filled and the aroma of roasting pig was in the air, when suddenly, into the great round feasting hall, without warning or announcement, strode a stranger. This was no visiting chieftain, no noble warrior or welcome poet storyteller. This was an ugly giant of a man, rough dressed in an old hide tunic and ragged brown cloak. His yellow eyes, big as beer barrels, bulged out of his head and each of his fingers was as thick as a warrior's wrist. Yet he was well armed. Over his shoulder was a club the size of a full-grown oak, roots and all. In his other hand was a massive iron axe. Its handle alone looked as if it would have needed a plough team just to lift it. The huge giant took himself to the centre of the hall, right by the fire, where the roof tree was tallest. Indeed, it was the only place where the thatch was high enough for him to stand upright. The giant rested his axe blade edge onto the floor and waited for Kunkova to take in the size of the man. Finally, the king got his breath back, but it was his poet who recovered his voice first. Uh, what is your quest here? he managed to ask. The giant laughed softly. The sound reverberated like rolling thunder. I have come to this court. For sport and fair play, he rumbled, have you a warrior brave enough to take up my challenge? Um, name the challenge and we will see. Have you a warrior who will, this night, lay his head down, so that I may chop it off with my axe? Tomorrow he may return the favour, if he wishes, and chop off my head. 
with the same axe. The warriors roared with laughter, but one, nicknamed Fatneck, guffawed the loudest. Ha! There are none stupid enough to take up that challenge, he grinned. But we might find a few to join in if the challenge were turned around. How about I take off your head tonight? And then you can cut off my head tomorrow, if you think you can. I would prefer my plan. But we will play the game your way, if you wish, replied the giant, and laughing softly to himself, knelt to lay his head across a great log that rested by the fire. Now Fatnick was a big man, and a strong man, but even with his legs set square apart and his muscles taut, he could only just lift the axe above his head. He brought it down fast, and with one blow, the giant's head was severed from his body. It rolled away into the straw. But suddenly, to the terrified astonishment all in the house, the headless body sat up. The sightless eyes groped for the head, found it, lifted it, and set it back on the blood-spattered neck. The yellow eyes blinked and opened, and the wide mouth smiled. And slowly, so slowly, the great giant stood up. His head swiveled until his gaze fell directly upon Fatneck. And then... He laughed. Ah, I will be back for the return bout tomorrow. There was uproar at the feast that night, and the next day the house was packed as they waited for the giant's return. But there was one person who did not attend that night's feast, and that was Fatneck. Well, I would rather challenge a true hero than a miserable coward anyway, grumbled the giant when he was told the news. And surely you have better heroes in this court. Ligra the Triumphant, Connell Victorious, these are names of high renown. Surely they will accept my challenge. <laughs> are they here at the feast tonight? The two men who were there, expecting to see Fatneck's demise, reluctantly agreed to the challenge. How could they refuse without losing status? But even so, they both begged a day's grace and suggested that the game be begun the following night. You can be sure, the next night when the giant returned, Lygra and Connell were both far away from Arwen. The giant sighed and turned to Concover. It seems, King Concover Magnessa, that stories of the courage of your champions has been much exaggerated. Lygra and Connell have not stayed to contest a champion's portion, I see. Yet there is one more of your heroes that I have not yet met. Where is Cucullan? Is he in this hall tonight? 
Maybe his word is no better than the others, and he too has left. This was too much for Cucullin. He could not stand to be taunted like this. Before anyone could stop him, he had sprung forward and, taking up the axe, leapt into the air with one of his feet, bringing the great axe down across the giant's neck. He dealt him such a blow that the head flew into the air. Cucullin caught it in one hand and flung it up into the rafters, where it stuck fast. But it did the young hero no good. The headless body stood slowly up to its full height. As if his fingers had eyes in their tips, the arms reached unerringly, stretching for the head, taking it and carefully replacing it on the bleeding neck. And as before, it healed instantly. The giant turned his yellow, bulging eyes on Cucullan. Tomorrow, he growled. Then he turned his head and nodded towards the astonished king and left. The court was silent and Concova sat on his king's chair, pale and shivering. Cucullan had accepted the challenge. Tomorrow night the ugly great Bucklock would return. If he remained here, Cucullan would die. And the boy was his favourite. He loved him, and besides, even if he was so young, Concova had to admit, Cucullan was probably his most accomplished champion. The ladies of the court were horrified at the thought of this beautiful young man beheaded in such a terrible way. It had to be stopped. It was so unnecessary. They all agreed. Well, they tried. They all tried. Ema, his wife, tried. Concover tried. Everyone tried to persuade Cucullan to go away from Awanmaka and not to be in the hall when the giant returned. But the young man would not listen to them. Do you expect me to bring shame on Concover? He retorted angrily. I may go to my death, but I will not sacrifice my honour. And that was that. He would say no more. But next day, as twilight turned to night, the giant Bucklock returned. And in his hand he carried the sharp and shining axe. He glanced around the house, his huge yellow eyes glowing in the firelight. And is Cucullin here? I am here. Where else would I be? returned the young man, quietly stepping out of the shadows. The huge man focused his gaze on the pale face that stared up at him steadily. You are dull of speech tonight, unhappy one, he rumbled. The fear in your face is there to see. You have not fled. I keep my word, growled the young hero. But I did not torment you with talk before I struck you. Get on with it quickly, if you must. I wasn't there to see what happened, of course, but I have heard the words of poets since, and they all recount the courage of the young man as he knelt and stretched his head across the great block. This was a brave act indeed. Cucullan was always impetuous and rash in word and deed, yet this act was not taken in the heat of battle. 
honour demanded that he submit to the axe without defending himself. Hard indeed for any of us, but almost impossible for Cucullin. A poet once told me that it was the sounds he remembered most. The muffled silence of the watchers as all drew in their breath together. The creaking of the old hide that the giant wore wrapped around him and then... Then the terrible swishing of the axe blade as it fell, like a wind-tossed wood on a stormy night. Everyone covered their eyes. And then, no, not a headless corpse and a head rolling in the straw. No, at the last moment the giant had reversed the blade and brought down the axe blunt side down, stopping its drop just before it reached the hero's neck. And then, there was Cucullan, struggling to his feet and staring defiantly at the grinning giant. The ugly buckler laid down the axe and held out his open hands to help the young man to his feet. Yes, Cucullan, he smiled widely, stand up in high honour. Here in the court of your king, Concover, in the presence of all, you have shown your quality. Who would now dispute your right to the champion's portion? Who will now deny that you are the chief champion of Ireland and that Ema, your wife, should have precedence over all the noble women of Ulster? He turned to Cucullan, and his bulging eyes suddenly shone like sunfire. <laughs> Enjoy your victory, lad. But do try to remember to think before you act. Then he bowed to Concover and left the house. And the giant? Well, he's never been here to Crookham, but I think I can tell you who it was. It was Curoy himself, in disguise, a favourite trick of his. Yes, I agree. I think he was probably the giant who challenged the heroes outside the fortress in Kerry as well. It was the sort of thing Curoy liked to do. And I can imagine he might have been quite annoyed to have his judgment ignored by both Loigra and Connell. And Cucullan? Oh, well, he went on to have many more adventures. But I don't think he ever really took the giant's advice. He never did learn to think before acting. Oh, well, Shinskelella, that's another story for another day. The meat will be spoiling. Fill your goblets and come and eat with us. For today... Enjoy the hospitality of Kruokanai.